Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode, whenever he'd have a a string of really good things to happen to him, I would I would pull him to the side and I said, "You know what's next, don't you?" He would say, "Yes, the valleys." I said, "Yeah, you know it. Like you can't be on the peak but so long. Like even if you climb to a high peak, you know what you're gonna see? You're gonna see a higher peak. And in order to get to the higher peak, you know what you gotta do? You gotta go down into the valley to start over again." So I said, listen, and if without peaks and valleys, son, all land is flat. Hey, it's Maria. Today I continue my conversation with Nate Turner. We focus on the lessons he learned throughout his journey as a father. If you missed last week's episode, Nate is the author of multiple books, including the history-making Raising Superman so that his child might be intellectually astute, globally competent and socially conscious, Nate intentionally backward designed his son's life. Today those tools, techniques and strategies, which were initially created explicitly for his son, are educational and life development staples for people all over the country. When you introduce yourself, Nate, you are a financial advisor, but how do you introduce yourself? Well, anymore in formats like this, I don't even tell people that I'm a financial advisor. What I generally tell people that that, that I am a humanity propulsion engineer and that my my job is to help move the planet forward. Okay, tell us a little bit more about that and why did you choose these specific words to describe what you do? Sure. So people say, well, you're a parent advocate. And I'm like, yes. And the people will say, well, you're, you're an education, like you help kids or families with education. And I say, yes. But those are just the um, outward manifestations of what it is that I'm really hoping to do. What I really want to do is to see that every person has an opportunity to, to live their best life. And so that means that you want humanity to be better than it already is. And my goal is to lead the planet better than it was when I arrived. So, which means to propel humanity forward. So I'm like, well, basically I'm coming up with strategies and tools and techniques like engineers do Hmm. to make humanity better. When he learned he was going to be a father, Nate realized he wanted to do things differently than his own father. In this process of changing the pattern, he started writing letters to his son as a way to communicate with him on a deeper level. The letters contained the lessons he has tried to teach him. Lessons his son would be able to use throughout his journey of becoming a man. Nate's book, Raising Superman, is a collection of these letters that he sent to his son between the age of 2 and 16. 
since publishing Raising Superman, Nate has written his second book, Stop the Bus. He has been traveling the country to speak to students, educators and parents about the importance of intentionally designing our children's lives and playing a major role in them. But how did this all come to be? It started just before my son's senior year in high school, well, which he didn't attend. I think we'll, we'll, we'll mention that, but sometime around June of 2012, my son and I sat in the garage. Um, I realized he was going to leave home and go to Brazil. He's going to not finish his senior year, well, not even start his senior year. He was going to pack his bags and move to Brazil and chase his dreams. And I sat in the car with him and I committed him for all the stuff that he had done and started to cry because my son was living this great life. And he was like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, like, man, I'm so happy for you. And he said, yeah, but you act like it's the end. And I said, yeah, it is for me. Like, my, like I've done all I could do. And my son told me, no, you haven't. It's not too late. You can do more. And that's, and that's when I've tried to figure out what it is that I'm, so he told me that. I'm not quite sure, I wasn't quite sure what that meant, but okay, that's great. The 16 year old told me to do more. And then when we got to Brazil, I dropped him off, uh, spent a few days in Rio. My wife called me and said, you gotta have to go back to the academy. He's not doing well. I arrived back at the academy and my son says to me, hey dad, you wrote these letters to me. You put them in some particular order and gave them to me in a binder. Is there a reason or a rationale on why you put the letters the way you did. I said, no, I didn't put them in any particular order. He said, because I reread the first three. I remember my purpose, and here's what we should do. Whenever I come home, we should take these letters and publish them and share them with other families. Because when you tell me I can do something, not only do I believe I can do it, I know it's supposed to happen. And I, and I want every other child to have what I have. So that's, he's, he's the impetus for all of this. Today, we do a deep dive into Nate's books as he tells us more about his parenting philosophy and writing habits. He talks about what he sees in parents, students and educators today and how we can all lead our children into the future. Which book did you write first? The, the letters are Raising Superman was the first thing that I wrote. Okay. And, uh, and then you wrote, how, uh, when did you write Stop the Bus? Um, I wrote that in 2016. Okay. 2016. Okay. Okay. So let's, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit more about the Raising Superman because I do have certain uh, specific things that I want to talk about. Okay. So you use one of the lessons in chapter five is that the glass is always some percentage of full. T tell us about this. What is this all about? Well, so, so right there's the expression, right? That uh, um, the, see the glass is halfway full, right? Mm -hmm. But sometimes there's almost nothing in the glass. And even then you have to find a way to be encouraged. And so that's what I wanted my son to understand. There, there were some things going on with him in relation to soccer he was feeling really like he was at the end of his rope. And I'm like, listen, as long as you can see something in the glass, the glass is some portion of full. It ain't empty, 
until it's empty and it's not empty yet. And that's sort of the way we, we approach, we approach life. That's part of the process that you have to find a way to, to be encouraged, even when other people wouldn't find a way to be encouraged. So if other people need the glass to be halfway full to be encouraged, you don't need to halfway full. You only need some portion of it because for example, I think I wrote in the, in the, in the book that if you put something in the, in the bottom of the glass and, it, and mold was to grow pretty soon, the glass would be full. It'd be full of mold, but the glass will be full. So even when it looks like there's nothing in the glass, there's potential for something to grow. And so that was the, the thing just to encourage him. Okay. Very good. Um, you ask a question in a, in the goal setting chapter about what, that everyone leaves a legacy and what legacy have your parents left you? Why is it important that we relate to the legacy of our parents instead of only thinking of our own legacy? So I think it's important for my legacy to matter. And my son for me is my, is probably going to be my legacy because honestly, most of us, well, I'll say most of us, I doubt very seriously that I do anything, although I'm trying, that I do anything that allows me to be remembered. Now, what I can do to be remembered when I don't have lots of resources, et cetera, it's kind of what your mom did was to pour into someone else's life, namely my child, so that my child can, can manifest the things that I believe were helpful for the planet and they could they could also take it a little bit further. So I think about like as a kid when growing up in the church, we would read about generations of of folks, and it would say so and so begat so and so, and so and so begat so and so, and so and so begat so and so, and that the lineage of a king or a queen began with somebody else. But the only way those people remember is that they helped raise a king or a queen. So um, that's that's what I was hoping to do is to be the best version I could be for myself, but then be able to give my son enough so that he could essentially grab the baton and do something great that allows people one day to say, oh, you know, Naeem, wasn't his dad named Nate? Like, that's the only way that, that I get to live forward. And even my father. So if I do good things, you and I are now talking, we've talked about my father. My father didn't do anything, right, to be remembered, per se. And now he's remembered because of the work that I continue to do. True. So is it important that, uh, I guess, children build upon the legacy of their parents or could it also be something separate? Yeah, absolutely. I think my son's legacy is different, but I think his legacy in some ways will be the same. So one of the things I, I, I challenge him to, to do is this word called who. I said, hey, I think the most important word in all of human language is the word who. And that is the word that no matter no matter what you do in life, um, wherever, however you end up, that's what people ask. Who who was who was Maria? Who was Nate? Who was Naeem? Who my wife's name is Latanya? Who was Latanya? Who was our friend Robert? People will say who. And what does that mean? Well, we'll ask who did you help? Who did you serve other than yourself? And who knew their life mattered because of their interactions with you? And so whatever my son chooses to do, I've always asked him to, to be able to ask and answer who. And so, yeah, he'll do something different than I will do. But it, hopefully at the end of his days, he will have helped serve and make sure other people knew their life mattered. 
Mm-hmm. Well said. And is this the reason why you always uh, treated him as a man in training? Yes. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, I used to tell people he's closer to being when he was born. I say he's not a baby. And so yes, he is. I said no, he's he's closer to being a man than he's ever going to be a baby. Like he's that's what we're raising him. And I said, and you'd ask and you'd ask people this um, this exercise I would give them called the Old McDonald exercise. So I'll, I'll ask you. You can play along with me. Old McDonald had a farm, E-I-A-R, and on the farm he had a chick. What was Old McDonald raising? Are you asking me now? Yes. <laughs> okay. He, said he had he a ha- chick. What was he chick. raising? So he, he was raising chicks, like chickens. He was raising chickens, right? So if Old McDonald had a calf, Old McDonald was raising what? He was raising calves. He was raising cows. Cows, right? sorry. Right. Ah, so I got you. I got you. You follow yes. me? So, yes, we all, follow. so when we talk about animals, we always talk about animals in their adult form. We don't talk about them in their child form. And so I'm like, but but when we raise children, we talk about children as if they're kids forever. Like you could be 18 and they're saying, oh, let's go pick up the boys. I'm like, they're not boys, they're men. Or, you know, sometimes I hear people saying they're 25 and some athlete says something that the media doesn't like and people who defend them will say, well, you know, you know, you can't be so hard on the boys. I'm like, he's 25. So at what point, do you become a man? Well, for me, I'd like, what's this dispense with this ridiculousness? And we'll just say we're, that everything we do is about being a man right now. We're not raising you to be a boy. We're raising yeah. you to be the final product, not some intermediary. Mm-hmm. So Nate, I, I'm going to ask you something that I usually get when I talk like that. So my mom never talked to me uh, like I was six or eight or 10 years old. Basically, we sat around the table and we said, we need to figure out if we have enough money. We need to figure out how we're going to do this. So literally, and it's one of the things that uh, I appreciate. I'm grateful she did Mm -hmm. because I think it it builds maturity and responsibility. And like I I could think of my of of the consequences of my actions. Like I I had to I had to, to, to be financially responsible. Because I could think of, you know, if I didn't do it, then it would have some not good implications. What do you say to parents who say this is not uh, the best way to raise a child because you need to have the, a child to think that he or she is a child before they become men and women? <laughs> what, do you, what do you say to that? <laughs> I'd love well, to learn from you. I, I, well, I don't know that I have a perfect answer. I would, I would tell them I disagree, but they're your children. At the end of the day, yes. they're your kids, and you get, or you get to decide what you think is best for them. But I would say, you know, people a lot smarter than me have indicated that, that the children I, – I, I believe the, the exact quote, and I want to say that it is, it is Socrates who said, Bring me a child at seven and I'll show you the man. Yeah. Right. Well, I guess Socrates didn't realize there were women around too. So of course that <laughs> the world was a little different, but the point, the point is that, that, and, and social scientists have shown, right. That the, the formative years from the first thousand days in terms of 80% of the brain growth, the first six to seven years, the period of time where a, a child's personality and behaviors, et cetera, are cemented are the most critical time in a child's life. So I'm like, if we're, if the goal is to raise a man or a woman, well, why am I raising a child? Why am I treating them like that, which I don't want them to be? Mm-hmm. And how do we make sure with this kind of, I guess, 
philosophy that we are thinking about. How do mm-hmm. we make sure that we we allow them enough time to play, to be mm-hmm. kids? How do we do that? Well, I mean, interestingly enough, like I said, people would say, well, does Naim have any fun? And Naim would, they, I said, ask him. And he was <laughs> like, yeah, my life is great. Like you tell me, like, my life is great. Like you say, how many people get get to lead a country when they're 16 and go live somewhere else and chase their dream? You know how I was able to do that? Because my parents raised me to be responsible like an adult so that when I got a chance to go do something, I was prepared to do it. So, um, you know, he played a lot. He played sports and played with friends and so on and so forth. But he also was was asked to look at himself in a fashion that was more responsible. You and I play, right? We do things that we consider to be fun. Oh, yeah. Right? And then, but no one considers us being like children, they say, well, you're having a good time. So I like, I just don't think that that's, I just feel like when I hear parents, when people say that to me, they're just looking for a reason not to do, not to take the same approach. But again, it's up to them. It's their children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there is the youthful mindset that probably have a lot of that, but like this is different than, you know, childish. And, you know, it's more like childlike and youthful and, 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 and they have the ability to play and have fun. Right. Versus being childish, which is to me lack of maturity or lack of responsibility of you know of our actions. Okay, right. you wrote in your uh, chapter just compete, which mm-hmm. is a chapter that has the word compete. I don't mm-hmm. know how many times in capital <laughs> letters, but you you say why does the father say not to worry about winning? Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Well, we don't have control of outcomes. So- so many times. So often you, it's, the outcome is out of your control. The only thing you can do is to, to, is to give your best effort. But without, without giving your best effort, or in this particular case that I mentioned competing, then, then there is no chance of ever winning. So you do yourself a complete disservice. If, if, the go, if your outcome that you desire is to win and you don't compete, well, you're certainly not going to win. But if all you're doing is focus on doing something because you want to win, then you miss all of the, the value in learning how to compete. So whatever he was doing at that particular time, it was—I think it was running. It was running track. Mm-hmm. I'd say you know running track is just symbolic of what you'll do for the bulk of your life. So if you run track and you run in the Olympics and you run professionally, and you, let's say you do it and you're 35, you run to your 35, which will be an extremely long track and field career. I mean, if your life expectancy is 85, you got 50 more years to go. (laughs) Like, what are you going to do with the next 50 years of your life? Well, you're going to take the lessons that you learn on the track around competition and you're going to compete in everything that you do. Together with this, you have another very beautiful lesson, which is about preparing and the importance of believing that we can accomplish something before we actually do it. So I want to know a little bit more about this. Well, so, you know, that's part of having affirmational thoughts, seeing seeing it so that you can believe it. Um, Again, my grandmother spent a great deal of time with her and she would always give me these biblical scriptures and she'd say, uh, you know, people perish for lack of vision. And I'm like, okay, grandma, like whatever. That's that's the Sunday school lesson. But it's true. (laughs) Right. It's true. You have to have what I call sensational sight, which is that you have to be able to imagine in your mind's eye what you want out of your life and then give it 
sensation or give it emotion for why it would matter. But that's the only way you can get up and do something every day when you don't know what the outcome is going to be. And so that's what I've want my wanted my son to understand that he had to he had to believe or see it happening before it could possibly happen. And even today, Maria, we do this thing called journaling forward. So every day we we write, I ask him to do it, and now I do it. I've been doing it now for about the past year. I write in my journal based upon the life that I want to live, not the life that I'm currently living. So tell me a little bit more. Tell me like an example, if you would like to share with us. Sure. So I was in um, California and my wife and I were walking along Venice Beach a year ago and I saw some homes on Venice Beach. And oddly enough, I dreamt about this particular house and then I walked by it and I was like, whoa, that's crazy. I saw this in my vision. And then I realized at that time that I didn't have a vision. Like I didn't have a vision for my life. Here I am again. I'm at this crossroads. I've been doing all these different things, but like to what end? Like, what are you, Nate, what exactly are you trying to do? And I hadn't even given any thought to what it was I wanted for my life. My son was enrolled in a PhD program at Carnegie Mellon. We're all very proud about him. He continues to see his life, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine it and things continue to happen. And I'm like, wow, dude, you're like the worst tree in the world. Your, your fruit must be genetically modified because how in, the world, how in the world is that your son? He has all of this right direction. So I started to write in my, in my journal about what I wanted to happen. So I wrote, for example, that I was on the TED stage and I was at a global conference and 17 million people have viewed my TED talk. It hadn't happened yet, but that was one of the, for example, one of the entries that I wrote. Um, I wrote, I write about where it is that I live. I don't, I currently live in Indiana, but I may write about walking on the beach in the morning in front of my home on the Pacific Ocean and how I've described what the sand feels like on my feet. So I'm really trying to be as descriptive so that my, right, so that my brain starts to process that that is the place that you should be. And then all my actions move me towards that destination. Um, I started writing about being a highly recognized public speaker. And I, re- I wrote about um, serving, not the homeless. I hate using the word serving the homeless because it sounds patronizing, but that I wanted to do something like a day of caring. And so then my actions, just like the things that I've written, have started to drive me towards the life that I said I, that I wanted to live. Mm-hmm. And do you, do, do you have this practice every morning? Do you journal? Every morning. I take the first 14 minutes or 1% of my day mm-hmm. to, to journal about the life, not that I've lived, but the one that I choose to live the one I envision, my best life. That's what I write every morning. Okay. And do you find, you said now you're, of course, you set the right mindset, Mm -hmm. but like, do you find that this practice also uh, um, helps guiding your actions? It does. So some of the things that I wrote and never imagined happening have happened. I'm like, I wrote about that. That's crazy. I started writing about giving more presentations that people were paying me for. And suddenly people started calling me saying, hey, can you come speak here or there? And here's how much we're paying you. I'm like, really? For real? I I, start, I, I wrote about doing the, the TED talk thing. And then I got an invitation from the TED national office to attend a, an event. And I ended up applying 
to be a presenter at the global talk. I got through the first two of three of the stages. So I think there said hundreds of thousands of people applied and I got down to the final 67. But I would have never done it short of the things that, that, I, was, that I was writing about. Um, I'm, I have a talk tomorrow. I have one scheduled on the 30th. Uh, I just did one, I was in Buffalo. So people were calling me and just surprisingly paying me to come and share stuff with them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but all of that originated, uh, that originated from me starting to think about what it was that I, and where I wanted to go in my life. And some of these experiences now that you are having in real life, like the TED Talk and other presentations, mm -hmm. when, when you are in that moment, do they remind you of what you have, you, what you envisioned before? Like, does it feel the same? Yeah, you mean, so is it a little surreal? Yeah, yeah, like, like because I know when you visualize things, you're also trying to, to, to like, uh, experience feelings and emotions. And how, how do I feel? It's not just about thinking about something. It's about how would I feel, right. you know, if I, if I were to give a TED Talk. So now when you gave the TED Talk, was mm -hmm. that, like, did it seem any familiar, I guess? Yeah, well, you know, I gave a TED talk, and then I and 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 I didn't think any more about it. I just like, okay, well, you did it. You can cross that off your list. I, that's what I did. And then, and then, right, the idea that you would become maybe more, right? That's what you write. Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a, a national speaker. I'm gonna help this many millions of families. Right? You're gonna change your own life. You're gonna have people work with you, and you're gonna collectively change people's lives. Well. I, I did a TED talk. I I looked at it one day and I had like 15,000 views and I thought, wow, that's cool. Like 15,000 people watch my TED talk. That's wonderful. I met a lady about a year prior to who, to, to be polite, poo-pooed me. She made me feel like I did not, like I absolutely didn't matter. So when I knew, said, hey, this guy wrote a couple of books, you should talk to him. Maybe you can help him figure out a way to... Um, get in front of larger audiences and help families. He's got some really great ideas that, that could be useful. And she was like, oh, okay, whatever. Well, in December last year, I get an email from this lady and she says, can you help me help a kid go to Yale? And I thought, are you asking me for money? Because I don't pay for my own child to go to school. <laughs> and she says, no, got a young man who I think who wants to go to Yale. He doesn't know how to do it. I've been following you. I see you have 300,000 views on your TED Talk and I was wondering if we could talk. So suddenly I was a nobody and then 300,000 views yeah. suggested that I, was, that I was somebody, right? So those are the kinds of things that you find yourself writing about. And I write, you know, I may write one day, you know, people once thought I was a nobody. And today, right, today I'm standing in front of an audience and we're teaching parents and there's 10,000 parents in the room and they're all using our process and kids are being prepared for college or careers in ways that they never, families never thought possible. And we don't have to cheat, right? We don't have to Photoshop in his head, body's head on a, <laughs> on a crew team, right? We don't need any extra money to pay anybody. We're showing families how to do this incredible work. So uh, on your TED Talk, which I find uh, fascinating, um, what's the key message that you want to teach parents? Well, I didn't know what the key message was because <laughs> I just wanted to give a TED talk and I wasn't, and I prepared, but I did prepare. I, I, if I could do it over again, I might would have done something different. But the last thing I said, I believe was the key message. And I said, we must learn how to connect at the heart. Mm 
Can you tell us the story with uh, with you and your son? About connecting at the heart? Yes. So, so when we brought Naeem home from the hospital in a limousine, right? This is this is part of the story. <laughs> because because he was going to be the prince and the prince doesn't ride home in his father's 1988 Mercury Tracer. So the prince gets to ride home in a limousine. So I don't know how to put the car seat in. I have no idea. I have no instructions on how to be a parent. I have no idea. The, the hospital kicks you out, as you know. And so we get home. Well, we get to my mother's home. And my wife is absolutely exhausted. And my, we got to figure out how to put this baby to sleep. It's about 1130 in the evening. And so I, I just lay on the floor on my back. And I put my son's head to my heart. And he stopped crying and went to sleep. And then every day we did that Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday, when we, when we finally left and went to our home, I, whenever he needed to go to sleep, I would just lay his, his head on my heart and he would go to sleep. And I realized at that moment, like that's the part, that's the connection that he and I were connected at the heart. He could hear my heart beating and it, it left him comforted that he could actually go to sleep. And even today, like today as a grown man, while I don't, he doesn't physically have to lay on my heart, he counts on the beat of my heart to make sure that he's still safe. Right? Mm-hmm. So I, I still so that's the point of it. And my father didn't understand how to be connected at the heart. Like I said earlier, he, you know, I don't remember my father saying that he loved me. He doesn't know how to be connected at the heart, but I learned to how to be connected to the heart. And I learned that from Mufasa, from a, from a, um, a cartoon or animated character, not the new movie, the old version, the, the original version, but I learned that from him on how to be, how to be a great dad. Thank you for that. I, I love listening to uh, this part of the TED Talk. I, I, I love the TED Talk. I think it's fascinating. But this part also, uh, well, the story about your uh, uh, name's uh, head, Yes, being shaped yeah. <laughs> yes. that's that's a, a beautiful story <laughs> with a beautiful lesson but also the story about being connected uh, you know moldable. at the heart yes. yes yeah i think i call that section moldable yes moldable yes and yeah. if we can mold our heads we can mold yeah. i think more or less everything else and we can Absolutely. learn these things okay so from the book uh, nate uh, raising superman mm-hmm. if uh, for someone who is about to become a parent and I, I can only understand that there is a lot of stress. Like, you know, what do I do now? <laughs> right. And it's different for every person based on who they are and where they've been and what they know. But are there like two or three key lessons you can say, well, this is where you can start and then the rest you can learn? What would you yeah. tell a, a parent to be? So I would, I would ask a parent to think very intently and specifically about the kind of life you want for your child. You don't have to pick a profession. You know, not have to pick a career, but think about if if this was going to be if today at some point is going to be your child's last day. What is it that you want people to say about your child? I, I, you didn't want to work backwards, so we didn't name Naeem for eight days. We we took him home from the hospital. His birth certificate, original birth certificate, said Baby Boy Turner. And then we watched his, his demeanor for eight days. And then if you had known you, Maria, we just said, Maria, we have, we got this baby boy. We want you to come over and look at him, spend some time with him and help us pick a name. We got 10 names that we were thinking about, but we're not sure. And we want you to help us to figure it out because we wanted to bring the village. So that's the second part. 
that you have to realize that you cannot do this on your own and that you need the right kinds of people to help your child end up being the right kind of person. But you have to find, you have to decide first what it is that you want your child to be. We wanted our child, we named him Naeem Kahari, which means benevolent king. We wanted our child, we wanted to raise a child who behaved like a good king, right? That was gonna be responsible for something, for a kingdom, for something greater than him, but was gonna do it in the best of spirits. How did Naeem, respond to that? Because sometimes it could be a little bit overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there, there are days that it, that it is overwhelming. He said as much to me. He said, you know, when he, last year, his first year in the PhD program, you could tell he was stressed. Um, actually, let me backtrack. Before he was accepted to his PhD program, he was stressed. Because he was like, well, what if I don't, what if I don't get into the school that I want to get into, right? And what are people going to say? People are all believing that everything is easy for me or I can accomplish every, anything I want to. And so there are times that he certainly is stressed by, by, by life's expectations, but they're not expectations that we put on him. Like, I, again, I would say, I don't care if you get a PhD. It doesn't matter to me at all. I, I care about the quality of human being you are. So then when you put that in context, we're, we're right back where we were about winning and losing, right? Then we don't focus on the outcome. Who cares? If the certain, certain schools, if Stanford says yes to you, fine. If they, say, if they say no, it's okay. If Carnegie Mellon says yes to you, great. If they say no, it's okay. Like you haven't changed. You're the same person. So that's the most important part. Like who are you as a, again, your who becomes the most important part. Mm-hmm. But also, as you say in the book, it's about also patience and perseverance. Yes. Because, because not things, not all things happen as we expect them to happen. Never. And we always, we always need to keep pushing forward. That's one for things for mm-hmm. sure. And uh, yeah, and be patient because we cannot control the outcome and the things you you talked about earlier. Yeah, I used to tell him sometimes we we would whenever he'd have a a string of really good things to happen to him. I would, I would pull him to the side and I said, you know what's next, don't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> he would say, he would say, yes, the valleys. I said, yeah, you know it. Like you can't be on the peak, but so long. Yeah. Like even if you climb to a high peak, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see a higher peak. And in order to get to the higher peak, you know what you got to do? You got to go down into the valley to start over again. Mm-hmm. So I said, listen, and if without peaks and valleys, son, all land is flat. Yeah, yeah, but but you're right. It's because we see another peak. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then we try to learn things or do things we haven't done before. So there's a lot of the learning curve, and the learning curve is usually a valley. Mm-hmm, and then right. you yeah, and then you rise up again slowly and patiently, and uh, you keep reaching the peak, and then the next one. I mean, we create like we create that, and we go through that. So yes, yes yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. yeah. And and sometimes like some peaks, like some valleys. You don't create some peaks you don't create. Sometimes someone yeah. calls you out of blue and says, Hey, we saw you somewhere. Can you come here and do something? You're like, Wow, that's great. I, I didn't even do anything to get to this peak. This is wonderful. Yeah, but guess what? There's going to be something else that's going to come along later on. It's going to be a valley. And it's like, Don't be. Yeah. Don't but be you, yes, but you choose to say yes, right? Mm-hmm. When someone, let's yep. say, when an opportunity comes or the next peak comes, you choose Absolutely. to say yes and you choose Absolutely. to take it on and then work your way through the valley to get to the peak. Yep. 
I want to switch gears and talk about the, the second book, Stop the Bus. So in the foreword, our, uh, our friend, Dr. Robert Chaitlin, wrote that you are a practical futurist. What does this mean? Well, that's a good question. So I'm going to try to guess what he was intending, what he meant by that. But I think what he was saying is that I have practical, like common sense approaches to thinking about how to get prepared for the future. That, um, that I may see the world different or see the future differently. And I'm, right, I'm constantly trying to like propel people to look at ways we can do what we can do today to get us prepared for what's, what I believe is the tsunami of, of uh, technology and innovation that are upon us. Mm-hmm. So when we stop the bus, what do mm-hmm. we need? What do we need to do next? What comes next so we can find a new way forward? Well, w- one of the things that comes next, right, is the way that we we engage parents. Um, so most, almost every school district or some group has a, a group called some kind of parent engagement organization. Mm-hmm. Wonderful idea, but it's late. So what, so what I imagine in the future is a process that's very similar to, to prenatal care and Lamaze. So, which is to say, Maria, you learn you're pregnant, you go see your gynecologist. At that point, they would say, okay, look, you're pregnant, and you know what you need to start taking? Prenatal vitamins, right? Because you're going to have a baby, and this is life inside you, and you got to get this life prepared to, for the time that they actually have to live on a planet without your body as a host. But it seems to me that's the perfect time to then also be preparing parents for to get to prepare that thing that's inside them for the time that they have to be educated outside of your body. But parents don't ever get any kind of instruction about the stuff that you should be doing. So if it's, if making a woman stressed, if you're a man and you're living with a woman or married to a woman and you're abusive to her and you're using all kinds of language to her uh, that is inappropriate, you don't even understand what you're actually doing to her, to her metabolism, to her psyche that is also being transmitted to the child. Well, maybe if we taught people what that meant and how to do stuff differently, we children, there wouldn't be so many children born with, with you know, high levels of hypertension and stress, et cetera. But then when a child is, when you get to the, the last trimester, then parents start taking Lamaze classes. Well, why we take Lamaze classes? Because we want to teach you how to have a healthy childbirth. We want you to learn how to breathe. So we give you, show you how to eat ice chips, et cetera, how to, how to have the baby naturally without cesarean and all that stuff. But again, it seems to me we haven't given parents any tools, techniques, or strategies to do more than just childbirth, but to do child raising. So yeah. it seems to me we should be we should be doing something very similar to Lamaze. So that parents, and we know that the first thousand days from that last trimester through the first almost through the age of three, the most important period of time for brain development and nutritional development. Well, why aren't we training parents? What why aren't we or preparing parents to be able to to help their own children. So that's part of what I imagine happening. And if we did that, I know that their educational outcomes would be improved because kids would be showing up to school not to learn to read. They'd already be reading. They'd be reading to learn. They wouldn't show up in school trying to see if you could count to 10. They'd already be doing math problems. So 
we be as a nation, we be preparing ourselves again for what is already a technological explosion, but it's an explosion oftentimes that's limited to the same number of people based upon wealth and privilege because some people get a head start, they know what to do, and the masses of people have no idea and find themselves swept over by this by the tsunami in ways they don't even know that it's coming. Mm-hmm. So is it a matter of uh, giving, creating this kind of what I call learning resources or uh, giving them access to that? How do we, how do we train and help parents? Some parents have access to resources, you sure. know, because they are the way they are brought up and they know the things we are talking about, but I know there are also the minority. Mm-hmm. So what about the rest? What I call the everyday uh, parents right. that they don't do anything, they don't think much or they don't have access to resources. How do we how do we help them? Well, I mean, as a nation, right, we can make the decision that the moment that we learn someone is pregnant, that there are things that we're going to start giving them access to. Like you don't, you can give prenatal vitamins. That doesn't mean the mother has to take them. Like the doctor says, get this, get this prescription field. Here are your prenatal vitamins. Hey, you could get a prescription field or you may not, but at least it's made available to you. So we could easily say to parents, hey, listen, we signed you up for a prenatal parenting education course. Each month that you come in, you'll spend the first half an hour or hour with this prenatal educational specialist that'll help you be apprised of stuff you should be doing. And then we'll we'll do your whole, your, your, your wellness check to see how the baby is doing internally. So we could do those things as a nation if we cared enough about the future of the nation to do that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I, I never thought of that like that, but we go to first grade and we learn certain things. Then before no. you become a parent, you can also go to whatever the first grade is or, right, right. or kindergarten or whatever you want to call it, right. prenatal. Yes, right. but it's more or less do, learning. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're learning. Not- and then learning things that mm-hmm. will help, but also learn how to learn and teach your child. Right. Your mom, your mom was a great example. You said yeah. your mother didn't go to middle school, but middle school went through her. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. <laughs> middle school went through her. She learned it so that she could make sure her, her child learned it. Now, if your mom could do this, again, you said she's that your mother is extraordinary, but she's not a superhero. No, like she's not. not. She's a right, very normal. Right, yes, right. yes. So she did it, which means that it's that it's possible to be done. But something about your mom said, "Hey, I owe my daughter this, so I'm going to do it." And it's and again, that's just something that's missing. Uh, and I think we could give families that do the use of the 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 OBGYNs and pediatricians and so forth, and then we could extend that with some formalized course afterwards. Mm-hmm. So in the book, Stop the Bus, you have a chapter uh, on day 28th, which is about the rule, not the exception. And I love that. You write that in the different context uh, about, you know, getting basically creating a life for a child that is the rule, not the exception. Mm -hmm. So when I think, but in, in this context now we are talking about, like, so my mother as a, as a mother was the exception. Mm-hmm. I think she has what I call self-directed learning ability. And, not a surprise, I have inherited. <laughs> yes. And yes. I don't think I have, it. well, it could be that I inherited the DNA and the, you know, physical, but I think it was more of the mindset because mm-hmm. I saw my mom yep. when I was, you know, 10, I saw my mom studying 
and when I asked her what she did, she explained that she was studying with, together with my sister. So basically, I call that learning through experience. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. I don't know what my DNA is or or it isn't. It doesn't matter. It's about I saw my mom doing something, and then it was the easiest way for me to say, "Oh yes, I can learn anything I want." Right. But 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 in the broad scheme of things, I still think. We're not extraordinary in terms of any superpower, but we are the exception. Mm-hmm. Because many parents, most of the parents will not do what my mom did unless we guide them, we give them a process. Right. And also I went through a traditional education system, but I, for whatever reason, I still remained what I call self-directed learning. Mm-hmm. So I was learning at school and I was doing very well, but a lot of the things I learned, I learned them on my own. Right, 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 right. So, but, uh, but I think the point that, uh, and I want to hear your thoughts, Nate. Is uh, I don't, I don't like to talk about exceptions. I think we should be trying to see what is, how can we help more people, not be exceptions, just help them do these things in a more of a, this is the rule, not the exception kind of right. thing. Yeah, no, I'm with you completely. And so, I mean, that's one of the things we say with when asked about Naim, we say. We don't want him to be an outlier. You know, Malcolm Gladwell, fam- yeah. Gladwell, I'm sorry, famously writes the book Outlier. And we still be like, we don't want him to be an outlier. So currently we did, we looked at the this, this statistics in computer engineering and electrical engineering. The number of people who are doing what he's doing that are African-American make up only 25% of 1% of all PhDs. And so for some people, like, that's great. Like you pat yourself on the back and say, look how exceptional my child is. And I'm like, well, that's terrible, right? Because the rule should be that every child should be able to achieve at the same, at the same level as he does. And that's, again, that's part of what we're attempting to do when we go speak or write a book or conduct a workshop, right? It's to find a way so that other families can raise children who become the rule where where like you where um hard work pays off right you you work hard yeah and it pays off with some level of success but then you also know that success is temporary because being successful today is not a guarantee you'll be successful tomorrow you got to get up and work tomorrow too and so that's you know that's part of it yeah yeah, to me, that's the point that I always say we need to do more in terms of educating, like showing them the way, giving them access to resources. Some people, Nate, will say no. Like, right. I, cannot, I cannot force, a, you know, the horse to drink water. You, uh, you, you can, but it's called waterboarding. I think that's against the... Yeah. <laughs> yes, you, yes, exactly. So, but you, you cannot force. And yes. my yes. mom always reminds me that many people know she has a, perhaps some different views here. She, she says that many people know what I know, but they're right. not willing to do the work. To do it. That's true. She's this absolutely true. right. Uh, yeah. So it doesn't make it easier. It just make it more, make it it makes it more accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, Pareto's principle, right, says yeah. the law of 80-20, that, you know, 80% of your outcomes are going to come from 20% of, of the people. And yeah. right, so... 20% of people are going to do 80% of the work. So yeah, I kind of, whenever I walk into a room and I talk to a f- group of families, if there's a hundred people in the room, I, I generally say, Hey, if we get 20 to listen, to do something different, then today was successful. And I love that because uh, when I was younger and perhaps uh, a little bit more naive, well, 
younger, uh, I used to think that I could change the world. Mm -hmm. uh, today, I think of I want to impact 10 people, maybe one person one day, 20 in a year, you know, the people that give me permission to be mm -hmm. part of their journey mm -hmm. and I can offer resources. I cannot do the work for them, but I can offer, you know, show the path. But it's, uh, it's a, I think it's exactly this, this point that, uh, yes, helping them to see a different way forward, but be very specific because I cannot save the world. I can just hopefully impact the lives of a few people. Which those people then may go on to save the world. And then yes. that will be, and then you will be a part of that legacy. Yes. And I call right. them human, I call them human seeds. Yeah, there you go. Right. And sometimes we give birth to them which mm -hmm. is a privilege uh, and something, of course, to be grateful for. But also it could be that I'm a teacher mm -hmm. or a mentor or I create or I give a presentation mm -hmm. or I write a book or, it, or uh, there are many different ways to influence the other person because you said uh, you talked about men who had mm -hmm. a major impact on you know on you and it was not your father. They were not mm -hmm. you know related to you. Right. Uh, also, I did not have a father, but there were other people that uh, my teachers that had huge impact on me. Mm -hmm. and so, you know, they made, they helped me make decisions when I couldn't make a decision. Uh, so yeah, it doesn't matter. I think we all, we can all create impact when we choose to. Yeah. The, the, the fruit on the tree needs more than just the tree to survive. It needs a complete e ecosystem. So sometimes, right. You're, you could, you might be the soil and sometimes you might be the rain, right? Sometimes you might be the, the bees and what they do to help pollinate the trees. So like you, you're a part of the, the fruits growth and how sweet it is. And you may not, you may not, like you said, you may not birth it. That's okay. You may not be the tree, but the, but the fruit cannot be what it's capable of being without a great ecosystem. I love that. I think that's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, where can our listeners find more about you and your work? So I have, I have, um, I have a new website. It's a, it's real simple. It's Nathaniel a Turner.com N A T H A N I E L A T U R N E R.com. And that website will take you to everything else. It'll take you to the blog, to raising Superman. It'll take you to the, the parenting course. It'll direct you to, um, be able to purchase books to watch the Ted talk videos, anything. So that's, that's the easiest easiest way to find me. Beautiful. I know you have a lot of, you create a lot of content. I read your blog, your books. I do look forward to the new book. When is it coming out and what's, uh, what is it about? So it's called, it's a jungle out there. And it's <laughs> the first thing that I ever written. So it's really sort of retro. And I was like, I got this thing I written, a new Lion King was coming out. So like, let's, let's release it. And what I did was I watched The Lion King about a hundred times. No kidding. I extracted 40 lessons from The Lion King about parenting that I learned from watching Mufasa and Simba and Nala, et cetera, and Sarabi, Scar. And I was like, okay, this this movie, this this animated story has all of these wonderful lessons in it. People are going to watch this movie and have no idea of these lessons that they're missing. So I, so I, t I shared it with my son and he said, nobody's going to read 40 lessons. So let's just take 10. Let's take the first 10 lessons, put them in a book. So we call this a jungle out there, volume one. Um, 
powerful parenting lessons inspired by the Lion King. Beautiful. Do you have a favorite lesson? I, I, I don't know if I have a favorite, but here's two lessons. I'll make them quick. One is the first thing that happen is, happens in a story where after Simba is born, Mufasa goes into the cave and he picks his son up and takes him out and shows him to, to the village. And I write that the moment that a father, that the moment that a mother gives birth, the father bears the responsibility of getting involved in the raising of their child. Right. Did you cannot wait for her? She's done all her work. And then I explain what happens to a woman's body through the whole process that men have no clue which organs move to certain places and all these different things happen. And then I, there's a piece about scar. And I said, just because people share your DNA does not mean they're family, that I, their family is functional. It's not based upon DNA. And that if Mufasa had understood that he would have still been alive. But because his focus of family was about genetic code, he ended up dying. And so I'm like, you got to be careful about what you accept as being part of your family. And that the bird, mm -hmm. Zazu, ends up being his best friend. And that, that oftentimes the people who have your best interests won't look anything like you. So as we look at people around race and sexual orientation and religion and gender, like you cannot choose what's best for your child based upon the homogeneity. Beautiful. Thank you, Nate. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. I, I loved our discussion, and every time I talk with you, I learn from you, and uh, I'm uh, so grateful for all the work you do. Same. Thank you. I hope you found this episode useful. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, I would appreciate if you would share it with your friends who are interested in the future of learning and work. You could also leave us a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. A new episode of Impact Learning will be published every Thursday. Thanks for listening. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidou. Till next time, 